Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, and actually we're going to go ahead and cover chapter 5. And I think as we do that, you'll understand why I've combined these two chapters. At least, hopefully you will. But I am glad to have you as part of this journey through God's Word together as we seek to truly grasp hold of scripture to understand its context and its 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 history and its framework but also to understand how it applies to our lives today so that we can hear God's voice speaking to us and be obedient to follow him with our lives so again welcome as we move forward on this journey, if you're joining us for the first time, you're welcome to dive in right here, but I would really encourage you to back up to chapter one and start at the beginning of Genesis as we go through. All right, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin this time of studying God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to, to study your word to have this, this venue, this moment that we can come together and, and read scripture and hear scripture and, and delve into it. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart sensitive to the promptings of your spirit. That as we study your word, we will hear your voice and see your hand at work. It is in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. Well, turning to chapter four, if you'll recall back in chapter three, we had the fall, we had the, the curse, uh, we had all of that, that sin brought into the world and we had Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden or placed out of the garden to the east of Eden. And uh, the angels set, the cherubim set to, to guard the the garden itself uh, with flaming swords flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And that that was because God didn't want humanity to be locked forever in that fallen state. There's, there's a redemptive element to it. Now, as we get to chapter four, well, we see if the next generation learned from the faults of their parents or not. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't look that great. This is the story of Cain and Abel. I imagine you've heard of them. Let's dig into the text and see what it has for us. It says, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. Now, if you're King James or some of the other versions, it's going to say, and knew his wife. Well, it's a euphemism for had sexual relations with. That's kind of how pregnancy happens. Um, it's part of the process. Now, oddly enough, that to know it, it involves an intimacy and not just a physical intimacy. It, it implies that there's more than just a physical act taking place. Because uh, in Hebrew, it's a completely different word used for animals mating. Um, that's an act of instinct. But with humans, there's more to it than that. And th there's some significance to that. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. 
Now there's some significance to, to Cain and Abel and, and the meanings of their names. I'm not going to get heavily into that, uh, except to say Abel's name roughly translates as a, a breath or a, a vapor. Um, you know, it's kind of an inconsequential thing, a meaningless thing. In fact, meaningless is one of the other uh, ways that name could be translated. Uh, Cain, on the other hand, is a word play in Hebrew for the word produce or acquire. And she says, I have produced a man. Well, that's what she named him. The Hebrew word basically for produce. Um, so you have that. Now, is there a lot of depth to that? Not necessarily. Okay, it's Eve expressing the condition and, and understanding that she gave birth and it is with the Lord's help. Even though the Lord cursed her because of her sin, the consequence of her sin was that greater pain in childbirth, birth. it was with the Lord's help that she produced Cain. Later, she gave birth to his brother named Abel. A little foreshadowing with his name, he's not going to last long. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. So Cain works the land. He's a farmer. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, there's some significance here. You can say, well, they both brought offerings before God, and there was no Old Testament law at this point. So what's the problem here? The problem is the condition of the heart, that Abel brought the best portions from the firstborn of his flocks. Cain brought literally some of his crops. Yeah, I grew a bunch of grain or whatever. Okay, I'm going to bring some of that for you. Here you go. As an offering to God. There, there is a certain arrogance to it. There is a certain lack of, of acknowledging God's role in all of this that Abel didn't miss. Cain did. Um, so Cain became angry that God didn't accept his gift. And he began to look dejected. Well, not just dejected. Verse 6, Why are you angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Now, this, this is almost reminiscent of God questioning Adam and Eve in the garden, and it becomes even more so in a little bit. You know, like, why are you hiding? Why are you angry? You know, why did this upset you? Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. You see, here God, he knows Cain's heart. He knows the struggle Cain is having. And God simply lays out for him the best way forward to, to subdue the sin that he's about to be tempted by. You see, it's not, it's not a sin to be tempted by sin. It's how we respond to that temptation. Sometimes we forget that and think, oh, I've been tempted. I'm such a horrible person. No, 
don't succumb to the temptation. Jesus was tempted. That's why they called it the temptation in the wilderness. You know, he'd been fasting for 40 days when Satan offered him the option of, hey, here's some some stones you can make them bread and eat. You know, you're out of touch if you think after 40 days of not eating, he wasn't tempted to turn those rocks into bread. But he had to subdue that temptation. So when God confronts Cain and says, why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? The problem was he wasn't accepted by God for what he did. Well, God says, look, you will be accepted if you do what is right. If you want this outcome, here's how you get it. But if you're going to refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Because you've just set yourself on a path where sin, which has been looking for an opportunity to take over, well, it's going to pounce because it's eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Verse 8. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? Again, God knew. This was much like God walking in the garden and saying, Adam, where where are you? He knew exactly where it was. Uh, the question itself is an indictment. Cain was jealous of his brother because his brother did what was right and saw the benefits. Cain did what was wrong and saw the consequences and didn't like that. And that consequence was simply God didn't accept his offering. Now, how killing his brother might have, in his mind, worked out to God accepting his offering, I, you know, sin messes with your head. As God said, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Cain didn't do that. Instead, he let sin master him, and he killed his brother. In fact, is premeditating. He went to his brother and said, hey, let's go out into the fields. Now, let's go to the place where I'm planning to kill you. Again, verse 9, afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, this this personification of his brother's blood crying out from the ground, um, that, that fits the Hebraic legal framework of a witness He's been indicted of a crime. He is having a witness stand against him. You know, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out. Verse 11. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. 
No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a a homeless wanderer on the earth. Now think of how deeply that cut to the core with Cain. What, What did Cain do? Abel was a herder. Cain was a farmer. And now the consequence of his sin, much like Adam being removed from the garden and the curse on the ground that was a result of Adam's sin, that through toil and the sweat of your brow you would bring forth from the ground. Now it's Cain for you. The ground is not going to produce. You're going to wander. You're going to go from being an agrarian, a farmer, with set land to being a wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Now that's not an expression of remorse at all. It's a complaint to God about the severity of the punishment. My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. Much like his father, he starts doing a lot of you statements towards God. You did this. You have made me this. You took this away. Still not acknowledging his sin. Then anyone who finds me will kill me. In 15, the Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Now, that's divine just, justice, that sevenfold punishment, sevenfold number of completeness. There's another one that will come up in a little bit. Number 10 is also a number of completeness. But uh, this number of completeness, seven, it's complete. I, I will uh, give sevenfold or I will give complete punishment to anyone who kills you. So he's saying, look, no, no, you have my protection, the Lord replied. No, for I will give sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. The Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, which means nowhere, east of Eden. So again, they'd already been cast out of the garden to the east now even further cast out. And Cain, who was supposed to wander, actually goes and settles in a land of Nod. I wonder if that's not just a hint of rebelliousness there. God said, I'm going to wander, but I'm going to do something different than that. We'll revisit that idea in a moment. But in this whole account, we see this interplay, not so much between Cain and Abel. That's a pretty short interplay with a tragic end. Instead, we see this larger interplay of Cain following in his father's footsteps by rebelling against God, by acting in sin, by facing the judgment for that sin. Except Cain seems to have even more of a haughty spirit, even more of an arrogance against God through this whole process. And yet, even in his judgment, God has mercy on Cain. Yes, there's very much consequences for the sin, uh, 
but God also provides protection for Cain. And that's a significant thing. But verse 16, don't miss the way verse 16 starts, not just where he winds up settling. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now in 17, we start into some of the, if you will, genealogies uh, that we find here in Genesis, and there's a few of them along the way, and they're rather significant. Um, in in chapter four, what we get isn't a, a pure genealogy. The way it's framed in chapter five, the genealogy we get there is a more uh, more traditional, more standard uh, framing of a Jewish genealogy, ancient Hebrew genealogy. Now, a couple notes about both of these genealogies. The ancient Hebrews didn't necessarily concern themselves with every generation. Uh, there's, there's ample indication that these genealogies don't necessarily list everybody. They hit the high points to make a point. And there's a certain numerical balance that we're going to see here. So uh, keep that in mind as we look through this. I know some people like to look at these passages and, and figure out the, the ages and when people were born, how old people were and everything, and say, okay, then humanity only goes back X number of years. There really isn't enough information here to legitimately do that. In my opinion, you're welcome to disagree. It's not a salvation issue. But I just want to caution you against that. That's not particularly how the ancient Hebrews concerned themselves with the structure of their genealogies. There's a lot of we don't know here. Uh, we don't even know how many gaps, much less how long. So let's look at what it does say, because what it conveys is incredibly important. First off, we have the descendants of Cain. Starting in verse 17, it said, Cain had sexual relations. There again, other translations knew his wife. Um, who is his wife? Well, there's actually a very simple answer for that. His sister. What sister? We don't know anything. Uh, yeah. Just because the Bible doesn't give us all the details doesn't mean it's not there. The Bible tells us what we need to know, not everything we want to know. Uh, but that early in humanity, from what I've read, the explanations are that the, the gene pool would not have been problematic for someone to uh, marry their sister and have kids. And, you know, if it all started with Adam and Eve and their offspring, then, you know, there wouldn't have been another choice. Uh, he, so who was his wife? Well, probably his sister. Cain had sexual relations with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city which he named Enoch after his son. Now that's pretty significant because how was Cain supposed to spend his life? Wandering. Instead, Cain decides he's going to protect himself and he founds a city. And not only that, he named that city after his son kind of a look at what I did. I built a city. I had a son. 
they share a name. Uh, there's, there's, there's kind of a, again, an arrogance there. Enoch had a son named, I'm going to butcher these names, Erad. Erad became the father of Mahujel. Mahujel became the father of mm, Methushel. Methushel became the father of Lamech. Again, my apologies if I'm butchering these names, but so be it. Now, how many generations have we had? We've had Cain. We've had Enoch. We've had Erad. We've had ah, Mahujel. And we've had Methushel. And then we've got Lamech. That's what Lamech is the seventh down the line. Lamech married two women. Now, seventh down the line from Adam. Lamech married two women. The first was named Ada. The second was named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was first of those who raise livestock and live in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and flute. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Nema. One day, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, the one who kills me will be punished 77 times. Now, what's the significance of this short genealogy and it culminating in Lamech? Lamech took after Cain in a big way. Um, yeah, there's no clear prohibition at this point against having multiple wives, and yet we see very clearly from the creation account that God's intent was for a husband to take a wife, and the two shall become one, not the three shall become one plus. And yet Lamech was going to do what Lamech wanted to do, because Lamech had a city, and Lamech could do these other things, and Lamech had these sons that that played the harp and raised livestock and live in tents and that, that were experts in forging bronze and iron and so on and so forth. And then he boldly proclaims how he killed a man and that he was basically immune from any judgment on killing that man, because if anyone came after him, that they would be punished 77 times. Now, except referencing that if someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one that kills me, he leaves God out of this whole thing, doesn't he? See, there's no acknowledgement of God. There is an arrogance and a pride, a drunkenness with their own power and influence that you see in Lamech. Lamech is an evil man. And you're supposed to understand that from reading this, that Lamech is an evil man. 
Whereas God showed mercy to Cain and provided a way for him to be saved, to not face death for the death that he had brought. Cain continued to live in rebellion against God. Cain's lineage continued to live in rebellion against God. And then we get to the end of chapter 4. As chapter 4 comes to an end, in verse 25, we have what is basically an epilogue. Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. So basically, you can remove Cain and Abel from the picture at this point. Of course, Abel's dead. Cain is off in rebellion in another country. Nod. Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, knew his wife, and she gave birth to a son. She named him Seth. For she said, God has granted me another son in the place of Abel, whom Cain killed. God has granted me another son. Eve is looking to God and saying, this is what God has done. God has granted me this. In fact, naming him Seth, um, we're not sure exactly the meaning of Seth, but um, provision or providing is is real close in Hebrew. Um, so it's it's assumed that it was meant to reference God providing. God had provided her with another son. God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. Verse 26, when Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So even there, at what the second, third generation from Adam, Seth and his son began to worship God by name. Just between verses 17 and 24, that lineage of Cain, and what we know in two verses about Abel, well, forget two verses, verse 26, what we know about Abel and Enosh, or Seth and Enosh, it's a completely different story. You see, you may advance in rebellion to God. They built a city. They started establishing all these trades and technology. You don't see any of that referenced over on the Seth side of things right now. And yet there is a night and day difference. One bows their neck and declares their importance. The other begins to worship the Lord by name. That contrast should be incredibly important. Inc well, is incredibly important, should be incredibly noticeable. And the message to the Hebrew people and to us today, not just the folks that, that Moses was leading around in the Sinai desert at this point when they receive this, is look, choose one. You're either going to be in that group or this group. You're either going to be Cain and not resisting that sin, not mastering that temptation, 
but instead being devoured by it or not. You see, there's no middle ground there. You either are in rebellion to God or you are obedient to God and worshiping him. It's not, well, I worship God sometimes and other times. No, you either live in rebellion to God or you live in relationship with God. Now, that relationship with God may have some rocky spots along the way. It's a relationship. But it's not living in rebellion to God. And there's very different outcomes and all the achievements on Cain's descendants, I think maybe help numb them to the reality of their separation from God. Seth was a whole nother story. And that's how we kind of round out chapter five. But I said this, or chapter four, I said, but we're going to go on into chapter five. And here's the reason. We've had the descendants of Cain listed here starting in 17 through 24. But now we've started listing off Adam's descendants down the line of Seth. And chapter five gives us that fuller account of Seth's descendants. It's a, it's another story altogether. Whereas the seventh son down from Adam on Cain's side was a murderer, had multiple wives, was, was arrogant. We're going to see something very different in Seth's family line. Now here's how chapter five begins. It says, this is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. Hmm. Just in case we needed a reminder of where we come from and who we are designed to be. We carry the image of God, the reflection of God to his creation. And folks, that didn't end with the fall. It just became kind of messed up in the fall. But we still, in some way, reflect God. We do it so much more when we live in relationship with God. Let's look at verse 3. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image. Hmm. Kind of like we were created in the image of God. Adam had a son in his image. He named his son Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Now, there's a whole lot glossed over there, and I'll tell you just right up front, I don't have any problem with these numbers. I'm not going to go through some mental gymnastics to explain them, and I'm certainly not going to explain them away. I said that I I understand ancient Hebrew um, lineages to not necessarily be every generation listed. So that our timeline here may, may provide challenges to us. And we're trying to count backwards and figure out how old humanity is or that sort of thing. But, you know, if it says Adam was 130 when he had Seth, I don't have any problem with that. 
when it says he lived another 800 years after that. So Adam lived 930 years and then he died. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I would have a problem if I lived that long because I'm 53 and I know how much it hurts to get up in the morning. I can imagine what it is at 930. But, you know, hey, this is early in creation and this is the way God had things working and I don't have a problem with it. I also think we're dealing with generation after generation after generation of sin and its impacts on this created world. And that affects our lifespans, but enough about that. It's not about the lifespans, but God blessed them with many years. Adam lived 930 years. And and then there's an important bit in verse five. He lived 930 years and then he died. Yeah. The last part of that curse for eating of that fruit you will surely die. Okay, it was 930 years later, but he died. And it didn't have to be that way. Verse 6, when Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. See a pattern here? Everyone dies. When Enosh was 90 years old, he became the father of Kenan. After the birth of Kenan, Enosh lived another 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan was 70 years old, he became the father of Mahalalel. After the birth of Mahalalel, Kenan lived another 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel was 65 years old, he became the father of Jared. After the birth of Jared, Mahalalel lived another 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. After the birth of Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. These genealogies tell us that they lived, tells us they lived a long time, tells us about a key figure in the lineage, because this lineage is going somewhere. But then it also goes on to tell us they died. That penalty of sin carries through humanity. Of course, the promise of God and the promise of the gospel is that we may all face a physical death, but we don't have to face a spiritual death. In fact, that physical death gets wiped away because we have the promise of a resurrected body. 
So this old one that's breaking down, that ages, that gets sick, doesn't have to be what we face for eternity. And yet we still have life. And we still have a body in the presence of God for eternity. It is an awesome gift of God and a gift available to us because He has covered the price of our sin. Well, we're down the Enoch. Let's look at verse 21. Now, Enoch, he's, you may have heard of Enoch. And yes, he shares uh, a name, if you will, with uh, Cain's first son. Not the same guy, okay? Different guy, similar name. But let's look at verse 21. In 21, it says, When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day he disappeared because God took him. But what? Yeah. Um, one of the few individuals that did not face death, but just entered into the presence of God. Enoch, because the description of him here is Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And he lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. That that doesn't describe the rest of them. I mean, you get the idea, the rest of them probably weren't bad guys, but they weren't walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day he disappeared because God took him. Verse 25, when Methuselah was 187 years old, he became the father of Lamech. After the birth of Lamech, Methuselah lived another 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Methuselah lived 969 years. Then he died. That's the longest recorded lifespan we have in Scripture, 969 years. That's a long time. Now, I'm going to camp there because, you know, Methuselah, you know, old is Methuselah, if you've ever heard that expression. But there's something else going on here. Methuselah is eighth down the line from Adam. Back up to seven. Remember seven down the line through Cain? Was another guy named Lamech. Uh, not the same guy. Different. Different Lamech. Uh, the guy that had the couple of wives that killed the guy that was pretty much an arrogant braggart. Um and living very much in rebellion to God. That's seven down the line through Cain. Seven down the line through Seth. Look at the contrast. He walked in close fellowship with God. And one day he disappeared because God took him. What a difference between Enoch 
and Lamech. Well, Enoch's kid, Methuselah, his first kid, Lamech. When Lamech was, again, different Lamech, uh, Methuselah lived 969 years, then he died. When Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. Lamech named his son, see if this sounds familiar, Noah. For he said, may he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. Who? Wow. Pretty stark words from Lamech, aren't they? He became the father of a son. Lamech named the son Noah. For he said, may he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. I don't think Lamech, I don't know. You could read that as he was, you know, blaming God for cursing the ground. But um, I think Lamech was just praying that Noah would be, would be the avenue through which God lifts the curse. Noah's the 10th down the line from Adam in this genealogy, which again, the seventh significant number completion. Also, the 10th is a significant complete number for the Hebrews. So Noah would have been a significant figure. And we know from later on in Genesis, uh, like real soon in Genesis, actually, that uh, Noah becomes a rather significant person. And it is in part through Noah that they find some relief from their painful labor. Because God judges the earth and provides salvation for humanity through Noah and a promise of provision for salvation for humanity through Noah's line. Now that's less obvious becomes more obvious later in Genesis. All of this is part of God's salvation history. All of it is showing us from that moment of creation on, even though sin entered the picture, even though there are consequences for that sin, there is separation from God by that sin. There is consequence. There is need for our sin to be covered and paid for that God is providing a way of salvation, that he promises hope and he promises a future. Now, sometimes it's not blatantly obvious as we go through this Genesis account, but it is there. Again, he named him Noah, for he said, may he bring us relief from our work and of the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. Ah, the ground the Lord has cursed. Something that humanity had lived with up until that point. Verse 30. And after the birth of Noah, Lamech lived another 595 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Lamech lived 777 years. And then he died. 
After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Hmm. That's the lineage. That's the 10 to Noah. And then we, we get mention of his sons. Now, as we look forward in Genesis, we're going to see more of sin and its consequences, the corruption of the human race and what's taking place. We're also going to see an account uh, getting much more detailed about Noah and what God does with Noah. This is a powerful story of fall and redemption. And if we pay attention, we see God's hand through all of it because God's hand is working through all of it. And all of us are products of this and all of us still face this struggle as we have in us a nature that is bent to sin. And yet for those of us that are in relationship with God, those of us that have confessed our sin to God, have sought forgiveness from Him, and live in that forgiveness, in right relationship with Him, we do battle against sin in our own hearts. But we do it empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of Christ living in our lives, equipping us so that we can live lives that bring glory to God so that we no longer are slaves to sin and no longer live under the penalty of sin. Now, if that doesn't sound like you, but you get the sense that it needs to sound like you, then I encourage you right now, right where you are, talk to God, turn to him, Confess to him that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness because welcome to the human race. We all are. Confess that to him and then ask him to forgive you, believing he can and does because he says so in his word. And he says that if we call on his name, we will be saved that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He takes us and he cleans us up. It's not about where we've been. It's about who we turn to in faith. Turn to him in faith, finding salvation, forgiveness for your sin, and then live your life following him. Worship him. Worship him. Walk with him. We've seen those words in the text today. Follow him and experience the joy and life that is in having a right relationship with the God that created us to have relationship with him. The God that loves us so much that he did everything necessary to pay the price for our sin before we even cared about it. Turn to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that even from the very beginning, your hand has been at work. We can see you providing hope and promise and salvation. 
And Father, as we read this text, to help us to not just shove it to, to history and the background, but, but Father, help us to see this whole interaction between humanity, your creation, and you. That there are wonderful examples of faith and obedience, and there are horrible examples of rebellion and sin. And Father, help us to learn from that and seek to cling to you and cling to the righteousness that you provide. Lord, help us to master those temptations in our lives, that we would bring you glory. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.